morning. I'm sorry if you were a bit confused after uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 11. Uh, Rebecca, if you didn't get it read, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 12 to 23. Um, but anyway, um, we're going to get into the scripture in, in a minute, but um, because it's College Sunday, we have the privilege of being able to hear from a couple of our students here uh, so that you don't have to listen to me uh, during the whole sermon time. Uh, one student will share a little later uh, in the message, but now I'm going to invite Jungji uh, to come up and she's going to share. Uh, so Jungji, would you please come up? Good morning, everyone. My name is Zhong Ji, and this is my fourth year, also my last year studying at Wellesley College. During my sophomore year, I started coming to ICF regularly, and it is through ICF and this church that I came to know God and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. As an international student from China, I was really exposed to any religious thought. In fact, my grandfather was ethnically Muslim, he belonged to an ethnic minority in China called Hui, and my family was more or less Buddhist in practice. I'm the only child of the family, and my mom became a stay-at-home mom when I, when I started middle school. She was what Americans would call a tiger mom. She loved me deeply, but the way she showed me her love was through a carrot and stick to motivate me to excel in school. At a very young age, I came to realize that the love I got from my mom was conditional on my performance. The higher the grade I got, the more I felt loved by her. I started to become obsessed with my grades and believed that I could earn everything I wanted, as long as I worked hard enough for it. Coming to Wellesley, I thought the same rule would apply, except it didn't. The first two years at Wellesley were much harder than I expected because I felt utterly lost. My mom was far away in China, and I did not know how to be loved in this new environment. I did not know how to make friends with Americans, and most of the time I was lonely, extremely unhappy, even desperate to leave. I did not know what I could hold on to which can give me value anymore. It was as if there was a hole in my heart that nothing could fill. I was baffled. I thought I deserved anything, as long as I worked hard. But no matter how hard I tried making friends and finding the type of love that I wanted, I never got hold of it. It was during these dark days that I met May and Christine, two former ICFers, who showed me the love and the care that I craved. The first time I saw them, I felt they were different, as if there was a soft glow around them that drew me close. When I learned that they were Christians, they started to share their faith with me, and I would ask many questions in return. What truly amazed me was that they would never show any impatience in their answers. I would ask many questions, and, that would, and they would always try their best to answer. In hindsight, I realized God was showing his love to me and speaking to me through them. I know I could not have gone this far in my walk with God without my two friends in ICF. I came to realize that I do not need to earn love from this world by working hard because God has shown me his love first 
by sending his son, Jesus, to die for my sins. I also realized that salvation is not like a good grade I could earn in school or like a desirable internship I could work hard for. I have to rely completely on Jesus Christ for my salvation. I have never felt so weak, but at the same time so empowered by such a thought. Recently, I started sharing my faith with my mom. When I looked at her face through Skype on my phone and talked about how much God has loved me, many times I wanted to cry because talking about God brought back so many childhood memories of how much she has loved me. During the years when I was obsessed with my grace to win her love, I forgot about the very fundamental thing that tied us together as mother and daughter. I realized that I have never loved her back or to acknowledge the tremendous sacrifice she has made for me. I know that I can never pay her back except through God. I want to invite God to open her eyes to him. It is my wish, my hope, and my desire to see her salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the greatest love I can show to her. Thank you. Thanks, Jungji. We love having Jungji in our ICF fellowship, and I just love the opportunities that I've had to um, be able to get to know her. Let me switch over to this mic. I think it was a, a couple of years ago, I was giving her a ride back to Wellesley, and we started talking, and um, she started sharing with me about her boyfriend, and she was telling me how her boyfriend wasn't a Christian. And you know, as a pastor, when I hear something like that, my brain just starts churning and churning. And so we were talking a, l- a little more, and, and I got to a point where I asked her, I said, you know, what would happen if, if your boyfriend never became a Christian? What would happen if you had to choose between him and God? And she immediately responded, she's like, oh, I would choose God. I would just break up with my boyfriend. <laughs> and I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking, at the time, you, you go, Jungji, that is great. You go. <laughs> oh. And I'm happy to share that um, actually... Uh, Late last year, I had the opportunity to meet her boyfriend personally, and um, um, he shared with me that he had made a decision to commit his life to Christ. And uh, he even went uh, to the university or to, to the Urbana conference with his university chapter in December. And so I was just really excited to hear that. He's just a really great guy, and, and hopefully he'll uh, be coming here uh, after graduation if a job works out for him. So uh, that's just great. Um, but pray for Jungji, pray for Jungji's mom. Um, you know, even though Jungji's a senior, she's going to be uh, with us, I think, at least one more year because she got an internship uh, in the Boston area for one more year. And, and I would just challenge us and encourage us, especially those of us in ICF, to pray for Jungji and, and her mom because I mean, wouldn't it be great if, like, a few months from now, she can just come and back and share you know, that my, her mom accepted Christ. I mean, what a great celebration we would have as a congregation, and we know that we play a part in it in praying for her. So pray for Jungji. As you heard um, in the sharing, um, that an ICF are trying to challenge our students to live more intentionally, to live more redemptively. One of our goals in ICF this year 
is for our students to have 55 spiritual conversations with unbelievers, and this had by 25 members of ICF. And we intentionally incorporated a larger number of members so that the sharing wouldn't just all be done by a few of the committed people. And as we get into our passage this morning, we're going to see how Paul challenged the Corinthians and in turn challenges us to live more intentionally, to live more redemptively in spite of other things that they could do. First Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 is actually a unified section where Paul uses these three chapters to address what you could say was a hot topic for the Corinthians back in those days. And that topic was eating meat, sacrifice to idols. And I'll show you this morning how chapters 8 and 9 work together to uh, build on this argument Paul is making. And then Pastor Chuck next week will be uh, looking at chapter 10 to expand on this argument that Paul is making. So it actually is the issue here. So back, back then in Corinth, it was a city heavily influenced by Greek culture. This culture believed in many gods, and it also believed in many evil spirits. And they believed that if an evil spirit wanted to gain entrance into a person, one of the ways the evil spirit could do so was to rest in or reside in a piece of meat. So what happened was when a person ate the piece of meat, the spirit residing on this piece of meat would also be able to enter the body of the person. And so to cleanse the meat of any demonic experience, or of any demonic spirit, the Corinthian people would offer their meat to idols. The reasoning or thinking is, is that in doing so, this God that they offered this meat to would come and cleanse the meat from the evil spirit. So then they could eat the meat free of evil spirits. This was such a common practice back then that it was fine, it was difficult to find meat not offered to idols. So the question for the Corinthian believers was, should they eat the meat or should they not? Maybe there was such a thing as, you know, maybe a, a Jewish or kosher meat market back then, so maybe these believers could buy meat not offered to idols, but what if they went out to a restaurant? Or what, what if they went, were invited to a friend's home and that friend served meat offered to idols? Should they eat it? And so to see how Paul addresses this issue we first need to look at the First Corinthians 8 passage. And if you uh, haven't turned your Bibles there, you want to turn your Bibles there, and let's look again in verses 1 to 8. So this is what Paul says. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idol. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial fruit to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. So in these verses, 
the Corinthians present three arguments as to why they believe eating food sacrificed to idols shouldn't be an issue. And the three reasons are, from verse 1, we have knowledge. In verses 4 to 6, an idol is nothing. And then in verse 8, it doesn't really make any difference to God. Food doesn't make a difference. And since the first argument is based on the other two, let's look at the other two first. From, verse, from verses 4 to 6, the Corinthians are saying that even if the food was sacrificed to idols, we know an idol isn't really God, right? I mean, it's just a block of wood, it's just a piece of metal. There's only one God, and that's the God we worship. You know, Jehovah, we worship Christ. There's no other God. Unbelievers may believe that the food is an offering to God, but we know it's not, so it's okay for us to eat it. And then secondly, in verse 8, the Corinthians further argue that well, eating food doesn't bring us closer to God, nor does it detract us from worshiping God. So it should be fine. It's no big deal. God isn't really that concerned with what we eat, so it's not an issue. So these mature Corinthian Christians felt like they had all the facts they needed for this situation. So they were good. Once again, verse 1, we all know, we all possess knowledge. We know that there's no such things as, you know, as idols, and that food is really no big deal. But then Paul challenges them. He has a word for them to show them that they may not be as smart as they think. And from this passage, the principle that Paul tells us is that, sorry, love for Our younger believers trumps knowledge. Love for our younger believers trumps knowledge. Verses 9 to 11. Be careful then that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So the weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So in other words, if eating meat causes someone to stumble, don't do that. Paul says emphatically in verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brothers to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I would rather be a vegan than cause my brother to stumble. And what's the underlying motivation? At the end of verse 1, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I may know that I have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols and it's not really a big deal, but because I love my fellow brothers and sisters, I won't do it if it hurts them. And I realize that you know, meat sacrificed to idols really isn't an issue nowadays, probably to any of us. So to give you a more modern example, you know, say we invite a uh, newer believer over to our house for dinner. He comes over and we say, oh, you know, go to the fridge, grab something to drink. And he opens the fridge and he's like, man, you have beer and wine in your fridge? He's like, how, how can you drink that stuff? And he shares, you know, I came from an alcoholic background and it almost destroyed my life. But God saved me from that. And I've since vowed never to touch the stuff again. I vowed to preach against the dangers of it. You know, how can you have this stuff in your fridge? If you said that, how would you respond? 
Would you say something like, well, you know, you, you, you're just, you know, a newer Christian. You don't really know the Bible that well. You don't know about this stuff. But, um, you know, just wait until you get a little more mature and you'll, you'll see that it's okay. Or, you know, we can, you know, come together and we'll do a Bible study on this and, and it'll be fine and you'll be able to grab a beer and it won't be any problem. I mean, if we started arguing stuff like that, Paul would be pulling his hair out because that's what the Corinthians were doing. You know, they would say, you know, they would say, it's okay, it's no problem. You know, we're mature Christians. We know it's right. And Paul's like, no way. You know, he would tell you, take those cans and bottles and pour it down the drain. Because you may have a right to drink, but you have a greater right to love your fellow Christian. Especially if he or she is younger in the faith, especially if, if it becomes a stumbling block to this person. So love for our fellow believers trumps knowledge. And then moving on to the next chapter, Paul takes this teaching even further. Another situation that occurred for him in Corinth was that some false teachers were going around, and they were telling the Corinthians that Paul really wasn't a, you know, a true apostle. He really wasn't a true teacher because he wasn't taking money for his services. They would say, like, you know, anyone who's you know worth their their weight, anyone who's you know that good of a preacher, wouldn't come and just teach you for free. I mean, they would come and ask money from you. I mean, we ask money from you, so you know we're legitimate teachers. Paul doesn't take money from you, so he he can't be legitimate. And in the first 14 verses of chapter 9, Paul defends himself and lists multiple reasons. I think there are six reasons in total why he's entitled to receive compensation for his ministry. And we don't really have time to get into all these reasons, and that's really not the focal point of this message. But you can get a gleaning of it from uh, the scripture we read earlier. Uh, in verse 12, you know, Paul argues, If others who do the Lord's ministry have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And then in verse 14, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But though Paul has a right to receive financial support from those under his teaching, he doesn't take it. And the question was, why? Why doesn't he do it? He answers this in the second half of verse 12. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And from this we get our second principle, which is um, love for others trumps certain rights. Love for the lost trumps certain rights. Paul didn't want anything to get in the way of spreading the gospel. It's not that he was against receiving payment and because in the book of Philippians, he writes about a time when the Philippian church gave him a gift and he gladly accepted it. But he wouldn't do it if it would jeopardize the spreading of the gospel. Remember that much of Paul's work was doing frontier mission work, you know, planting churches where there were none prior, witnessing to those who have never heard the gospel. And with this type of work, there were obviously more sensitivities. You know, imagine if you sent me out as a church, you sent me out as a missionary to an unreached people group, and I spent some time there, and by God's grace, God blessed my efforts such that I was able to see like three to four people become Christians. And once they came to Christ, what if I immediately started telling them, like, well, you know, 
you know, I'm here living with you all, and I'm not really making ends meet financially, so you need to start giving me money. You know, if, if I said that, what would they think? And worse, what would this people group think? You know, they just think, well, yeah, you just want us to become Christians so we can give you money. The people group would just be thinking, you know, you're just here because you want to take our cash. And of course, Paul wouldn't want this perception to, to, to be. You know, this would be a terrible perception for the people to have. So Paul says, I don't want to risk it. I will not take any money if it means jeopardizing the spread of the gospel. He confirms this in verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So do you see how chapter 9 fits in with chapter 8? In chapter 8, Paul argues to the Corinthians, sure, there may be nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. You know that you have a right to do so. But don't exercise your freedom to do this if it harms your fellow believer. Love them enough to sacrifice your rights. And then he follows with a personal example in chapter 9. He tells them, you know, as I live my life, follow my example. I have the right to receive compensation in my ministry just as you have the right to eat meat. But I won't exercise this right for payment if it compromises my witness to the loss. I don't just love my fellow believers, you know, younger believers. I love the loss so much that I wouldn't want to do anything to jeopardize my witness to them. You know, eating meat sacrificed to idols and receiving payment for ministry you know, are probably issues, once again, that don't relate to any of you in the congregation. But I think the application, nonetheless, is very relevant. Understand that Paul is challenging his readers to live intentionally, to live redemptively. And this often means sacrificing our freedoms in order to do so. Sacrificing our freedoms to intentionally love. For our congregation, I know for many of you, for the majority of you, I mean, you love seeking knowledge. You love to learn about the scriptures. You love to attend Bible studies. You love to discuss deep theological items. I mean, and I sit in small group studies sometimes, and you guys come up with questions that I would never even think to ask. You think hard about scripture, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, all over scripture, Paul says, you know, Paul and the other gospel writers says, gain knowledge, you know, root your faith in knowledge, so on and so forth. Knowledge is not a bad thing. But in the same way you think hard about scripture, in the same way you think hard about gaining knowledge, let me ask you, how hard do you think about loving others, especially loving the lost? I'm going to invite um, Grace Adam up to share now because I know this is something that she's been challenged with. So, Grace, can you come up and share? Mm-hmm. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Grace, and I'm a senior at Olin College. And I want to share with you my story on how ICF has really 
help me with my faith and um, in terms of outreach at my campus at Olin. So I started coming to ICF uh, towards the end of my first year in college. And um, at ICF, I was able to serve in multiple capacities and develop relationships that have really impacted my life. And, you know, these people have really gone out of their way to invest in me and pour into me. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm just so blessed to have this community. Um, But the reality of it was, was that I only saw them two or three times a week. The rest of the time, I'm at Olin, where the Christian community is very small. And uh, to be honest, during my sophomore and junior years, I had a very strong sense of loneliness. Um, And I kept asking God, why aren't there more Christian friends in my social groups? Why can't I... um, why, why do I have to keep trying, essentially, to live out my faith instead of having the luxury of um, sharing my faith with friends that know where I'm coming from? Um, but God was pushing me to share my faith um, and to share the truth about Jesus um, to some of my non-Christian friends. Uh, but of course, naturally, I'm terrified um, because this is very uncommon in the in the Olin community. Um, but God highlighted three of my friends uh, to share the gospel with and to reach out to. Um, two of them are now young believers. Uh, one of them has a background in Catholicism. And I've invited them to church, uh, even to retreat last year, and had really deep conversations about faith. Um, but I didn't see direct fruit or results. Like they have, they they're not coming to church regularly, and the conversations aren't consistent. Um, and so I felt very discouraged. I felt the burden of, oh, this is my responsibility to save them. Like I'm their only Christian friend. I have to do this. But um, I realized that it is not my responsibility. And it's not my role to save them. Um, But my role is to be a good witness to them and to be a good friend to them. And so um, over this past winter break, very recently, I received a very strong conviction that even though there wasn't direct fruit or results from the relationships I was trying to build, that I need to keep praying for Olin. Um, I need to keep witnessing to Oliners. Uh, But before I take any action, before I do anything, I first need to live a more holy and intentional life um, at Olin. And so um, I set my priorities uh, on uh, spending more time with God, making my heart with God right first um, before I could uh, share the gospel or uh, talk to anyone about my faith. And so um, through this, I found that my friendships that that revolved around secular values, um, they weren't as close as they have been in the past. Um, But the relationships that revolved around Christian values and about Jesus, those were uh, growing immensely. And those grew more in one semester than the past three years. Um, One of my friends, uh, one of the uh, friends that God had highlighted to me 
um, he had a background at going to church growing up, but stopped going to church in college. And um, I noticed he didn't have a Bible. And even though we had conversations about the Bible, he didn't have one. And so um, one intentional uh, decision I did was to get him a Bible. And because uh, that helped me segue into having Bible studies. And so right now, with those three friends God had highlighted, including um, the friend that I gave the Bible to, we're having weekly Bible studies that literally started maybe two or three months ago. And um, I'm thinking, this is not happening. I can't believe I'm in this position to lead these people. Um, And I'm thinking, like, who am I to do this? Uh, I'm not qualified. Um, But to be honest, I'm not perfect, and I don't know all the answers. Um, But God loves Olin very much, and he strategically placed me in these people's lives to pour into them the same way ICFers have done for me. And so even though I am graduating this May, I have full faith that God's plans for Olin will continue to unfold. Thank you very much. Thanks, Grace. Appreciate your sharing. So you see, you know, in these two chapters, um, Paul is basically addressing the issue of our rights and freedoms. You know, the Corinthians are going, don't I have the right to eat meat offered to idols? For Paul, didn't he have the right to receive payment for ministry? You know, at times, I think we find ourselves asking similar questions, like, don't I have the right to drink? Don't I have the right to see an R-rated movie? Don't I have the right to spend X amount of money on a car? Don't I have the right to play video games? Don't I have the right to listen to secular music? Whatever. You know, and for us living, you know, in, in, in this country that we do, where we live mostly comfortable, undisturbed lifestyles, you know, we do have all these freedoms. And it's easy for us then to ask these questions. But these are the wrong questions to ask. In a book he wrote, John Piper was describing these questions as falling into this category he calls avoidance ethics. And what he meant by that was these questions just focus on what do we need to do to avoid trouble, to avoid sin. But if we were really serious in fulfilling Christ's missions for us, we shouldn't be asking, oh, can I do this? Can I do this? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? The answers just result in a list of do's and don't. And at the end of his, his argument in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Paul concludes by saying, you know, so, whatever, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if we were serious about fulfilling, fulfilling this command, instead of asking, can we do this, can we do that, The better question, Piper says, is to ask things like, how will this help me know Christ or display Christ? How will this help me glorify Christ and let others know that this is my aim? How will this help others come to know Christ? These questions, he writes, is mainly positive, not negative. And so the question for us is, you know, how do we use our freedoms to love intentionally, to live intentionally, 
What are you currently doing to use your freedom to love on others, to love the lost? You know, it doesn't really necessarily have to be anything that profound. It could be something very simple. You know, hearing Jungji's testimony, for those of you who know May and Christine, man, you know that they just exude love. And their presence and care for Jungji is what really made, you know, was the strong witness for her. I remember, you know, Jungji sharing how, like, you know, a lot of times the, the girls at Wellesley, the, the atmosphere at Wellesley is just like every man for himself. Well, actually, it should be every woman for himself, for herself, every woman for herself. But she saw that May and Christine weren't like that, that they were different. And that's all that, all that it took was just their intentionality to live a way that would show that they're not following the rest of how most Wellesley students are. And I'm touched she was sharing with me earlier, Jungji was about how she's trying to be intentional in sharing Christ with her mom. For myself, last week I was exercising at the gym. And if your gym is like the one I go to, you know, basically people just kind of keep to themselves. You can just go there and exercise and talk to no one if you want. Most of the people have earbuds and they're listening to music anyway, so they don't want to be disturbed. But last Monday, I felt prompted to initiate a conversation with a guy who seemed new to the gym. You know, we started talking, and I found out he was a graduate of Brandeis, and he actually had heard of our church because he knew someone who used to go to ICF. Um, as we talked, I could sense that he wasn't a believer. And though I, I didn't have an opportunity to you know, actually share the gospel with him uh, that Monday. Um, you know, I, we talked about playing tennis in the future, and, and, and um, he was sharing with me that, you know, of his interest to do so. It was funny because the next day I got an email from someone else who uh, plays tennis, and, and I sent out an email to some people because we were looking for another player. And this guy... Um, not even knowing I met this person on Monday, said, oh, you should email this guy who, who I play with. He's, he's good and he's looking to play. So I emailed him, you know, and I said, hey, I think I, you, know, you were the one I just met the other day. Would you like to play tennis with us? And, and he joined us on Wednesday to play. And so we were able to talk a little more. And, and once again, you know, I, I wasn't able to fully share the gospel with him, but, you know, we talked some, and, and I just have this, Hope and, 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 you know, I'm very, very prayerful and hopeful that I'm going to be able to see him again in these next coming weeks and God's going to give me an opportunity to talk with him about faith issues. You know, but none of this would happen if I didn't take the initiative to speak with him on Monday. So I believe God gives all of you opportunities to live intentionally, to love intentionally. And are we praying for these opportunities? Do we take advantage of these opportunities that God gives us? You have a lot of freedoms. You have the freedom to do what you want. But Paul, Paul challenges us in this chapter to sacrifice, be willing to sacrifice our freedoms for our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. To be willing to sacrifice our freedoms to love the lost. So the challenge is, even this week, to love intentionally and to live redemptively. So as Paul says, so that others 
may come to know Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you give us through Paul. And even though you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols and um, you know, receiving payment for ministry may not really be a relevant issue for many of us personally, uh, Lord, you, you use this passage to challenge us, to, to remind us to live intentionally. Father, we know that there is no other name under heaven or earth that people can be saved except through Jesus. And so we must go tell others about this. Because you have placed in our workplaces, in our schools, people who are lost. And as Grace shared, it's no coincidence that God placed her at Olin. Just like it's no coincidence that God placed each of us in our workplaces, in our schools. So help us to have our spiritual eyes open. And help us to be willing to make sacrifices so that we can love more intentionally, live more redemptively. And Father, I do pray for Jungji's mom, that you would use Jungji and and other Christians in her hometown to be a witness to her. Lord, may she come to know Jesus. May she come to receive this love, this great love that you have. We pray that you would understand the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so that her sins can be forgiven and she can be in a personal relationship with you. Father, please draw her to Christ because, Lord, there is no other name on which she can be saved. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.